Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Hatchbend Apostolic Church web broadcast. In our society today, some, and yes, sadly, maybe even most, question the value of preaching in their lives. But we still believe what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In essence, Paul preached that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And so that's why we still place such a high value on the preached word of God in agreement to the scripture. And so now I'd like to thank you again for joining us for a message from the pulpit of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. Praise the Lord. Isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? God bless you. Go with me to the book of Matthew chapter 28 and 19. And you can be seated while you're finding that in your Bibles. Book of Matthew chapter 28, 19. Pretty confident that most all in here could quote that passage of Scripture that we've read or heard preached about so many times. This series that we've found ourselves in this month is titled A Glorious Church. And today we're going to talk about the church in action. The church in action. And that can be misunderstood as this building or this place. But that's not what we're talking about when we use the word church. You are the church. I am the church. We, we are the ones that have been called by Jesus to take action. And we'll learn today to take this gospel into the world. And that can be very intimidating because everybody's not a speaker or a preacher or a teacher. And I believe it is the devil's pleasure to convince many of us that, that we're not equipped to spread this gospel. And I hope by the end of this message, with the help of the Holy Ghost, that the Lord will help us to understand that we are able. We can. Maybe not stand behind a desk and hold a mic, but you have the ability inside of you to tell someone what God has done for you in your life. The book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19 Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We could stop right there and teach a two-hour Bible study on baptism, but we won't do that this morning. We'll move on into verse 20. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So here we read where Jesus has commissioned his disciples to take the gospel to everywhere and to everyone. And it is our responsibility when we have been born again to proclaim the gospel to everyone we can. We're all called to be ministers of the gospel. I've already stated that not all are called to be behind this desk, but we are all called to share this good news. Let me be very clear when I say that the preaching of the gospel Behind the pulpit is a must. It's, it's necessary. We all know that. Jesus chose the foolishness of preaching to save the lost. And I say this in great reverence to every truth preaching minister and every pulpit that truth is preached behind. But I believe that when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at how many souls were saved and saved not by listening to a pulpit message. They received the revelation of Jesus Christ because a friend, a loved one, a co-worker, a relative, 
someone they came in contact with shared the gospel with them and led them to Jesus Christ. And that's how they were saved. And I have great admiration for Holy Ghost-filled men and women that live their lives by example. Perhaps they've never been behind a pulpit to teach. They've perhaps never taught Sunday school uh, or taught a, maybe perhaps never even taught a, a Bible study with a format. But day in, day out, they live their lives. They conduct themselves in their personal life. They conduct themselves in their business life. And they live a life that many can look to and say there's something different about them. The way they carry themselves, the way they, the way they talk, and the way they act. And I believe we all have that responsibility to carry ourselves in a godly and a Christian manner. In 490 B.C., the Persians invaded Greece to bring Greece under the control of the Persian Empire. And although there were several Greek city-states, the Athenians was most impacted by the invasion. The Battle of Marathon was a key battle that turned the tide of the first Greco-Persian War. The defeat did not critically wound the Persians. However, it significantly increased Athenian morale. And their victory proved the Greeks could resist the Persians and even defeat them on the battlefield. Marathon was located approximately 25 miles from Athens. And legend states that a messenger named Theodopolis was commissioned to carry the good news of the victory back to the Athenians. And Theodopides swiftly ran south to Athens, but after he arrived, he collapsed and died immediately once he had shared the good news. And so while the Athenians lamented his death, they were relieved to know that their enemy was defeated. Theodopides' good news brought the Athenians relief and comfort. And this story is more than just a brief lesson in Greek history. But the New Testament was written in Greek rather than Hebrew to communicate the gospel with as many as possible. Alexander the Great's army conquered much of the known world and painted the world Greek between 336 and 323 B.C. And the Greek language became important means of communication across the new empire. So when the Romans conquered Greece in 146 B.C., they recognized the usefulness of the Greek language, and they continued speaking and writing it. And as a result, you and I have the New Testament today that was strategically written in Greek. Greek words with biblical significance would have been used to describe Theodopides. Since the message he brought was good news, the Greek word eungelion was likely used, and this word is usually translated gospel in our English translations, and it denotes good news and victory. New Testament authors used Angelion to present the message of Jesus overcoming the forces of sin and death, and his victory is good news for all humanity. And so when Jesus commissioned his disciples to preach the gospel, he called them apostles or apostolos in Greek. The Greeks regularly used apostolos to refer to a messenger or someone sent forth with orders. And just as Theodepides was sent forth as a messenger carrying good news, Jesus Christ has sent you and I into this world as messengers with his good news. And we are heralds of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God, and we proclaim the victory over evil, death, and sin. In the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
the ministry of Jesus turned toward Jerusalem after the 12 disciples discussed his identity as the Messiah. And along this journey, Jesus had several encounters with Jewish sects. He come in contact with Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians. And as you know from your Bible reading, most of those became rigid and sometimes resulted in arguments or disputes. In Luke 9, Peter confessed Jesus as the Messiah and Jesus predicted his death to the disciples. Luke 9 and 18 tells us, And it came to pass as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elias, and others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. So while Jesus was speaking, speaking to a much larger crowd, he invited believers to take up their cross daily and follow him. And this cross has been romanticized by modern Christians as a symbol of Christian faith and hope by perhaps a necklace around the neck or a cross over their door in their home. And many people today do the same thing blindly and think that because a cross is around their neck or tattooed on their bicep that it makes them a Christian. And I'm not implying that in a judgmental statement. I'm merely stating that it takes more than that to be a child of God. Something has to take place in your heart. It's got to take place in your mind and in your life. There has to be a change in your life to be marked as a Christian. But to the audiences of Jesus taking up your cross reminded them of the parade of condemned individuals bearing their crosses upon which they would soon die the Roman death penalty. Luke also recorded the miracle on the Mount Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw Jesus glorified as he prayed. Moses and Elijah appeared alongside Jesus and they spoke to him about his death and what would happen to him soon. So on the mountain, the disciples heard God's voice from heaven say, This is my beloved son. Hear him. And the mission of Jesus was to die in Jerusalem. And the Spirit of God was confirming his mission to the disciples. Unfortunately, they did not listen. And so as we close Luke 9, Jesus sets out for Jerusalem. And the ministry of Jesus Christ as a Messiah and the suffering servant had been confirmed. And he was fully aware that he was headed to Jerusalem to be betrayed, to be tortured, and to be killed. And rather than his disciples being supportive, they fell asleep at inappropriate times. And I want you to imagine that with me this morning. I, I could see that you might would die for your spouse or your kids or your parents, but to die for people that don't know and don't care and that people that have not been born yet he died for you and I before we were ever even here. He saw us before we was formed. What a Savior. What a, what a Savior that would think enough of me to pull me out of the gutter and pay the price that he paid for my salvation. The disciples found themselves doing things like arguing over which one would be the greatest. In Luke 9 and 46, they arose reasoning among them which should be the greatest. 
They, they rebuked others inappropriately. In Luke 9 and 49, you'll find where they uh, saw someone casting out devils in his name and they forbade him because he followed not with us. And Jesus told them, don't forbid him not for he that is not against us is for us. They often offered to misuse their authority against Samaritans. In Luke 9 and 54, when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias did? And he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of the spirit you are. So the 12 disciples of Jesus completely missed what the mission was. And they traveled with him for three years. So we can be in the church all of our lives and all together miss what Jesus had commissioned us to do. And that's why it's so important to be sensitive to the Spirit of God when we, when we can hear or feel Him prod us to comfort someone or to encourage someone or to pray for someone, to witness, or just simply be a, an ear to listen to someone. And sometimes that's all it takes to save someone's life. You'd be surprised at how little you can do that could be such a great help to someone. To truly understand how Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are good news, we must first understand the bad news that confronts us all. Certainly, Jesus is a Savior, but that inherently means you've got to be saved from something. And so when a firefighter rescues someone that is trapped in a burning building, the firefighter saves the person from being trapped alive. And in the same manner, Jesus has saved us from the guilt of sin. And we know that sin is contrary to God's law. And since God is just and His standard is perfect, we too are like that firefighter. When we share this gospel, it is much the same as you and I rushing into a burning building and letting them know there is an escape from this. You, you don't have to spend an eternity uh, feeling this way and spend an eternity burning. The, the Greek word for, for sin is homartio, and it applies an archer that has missed the mark. And if the archer misses the target completely or just by a few inches, it is still counted as he missed the mark. And unfortunately, we all have missed the mark. And therefore, each and every one of us bears the guilt of sin. But thanks be to God, the guilt of sin is removed because God has forgiven you and I of all our trespasses. Jesus frees us from the guilt of sin because he bore the wrath of God for us. And the purpose of Jesus was not just to deliver us from the guilt of sin and the wrath of God. Jesus also broke the power of sin through his resurrection. And the gospel promises us that sin is continually being broken through the infilling of the Holy Ghost. In Colossians 3, Paul made key arguments about how the power of sin is broken. Paul saw believers as being raised to new life with Christ. And since he spoke in the present tense, he was speaking of how believers are raised into new life through the Holy Ghost. And although Jesus has raised us to new life, there are still lingering effects of sin. And they will remain with us and even may remain with us for a, a lifetime. We know that sins can be forgiven and washed away, but their effects can remain with us for a long time. And that's why I would admonish young people, you be careful and beware of the sin that you're committing today. 
Uh, not that God cannot forgive you, but it may be something that you have to deal with for the rest of your life. And I, I can speak from experience from that. And, and we're called to play an active role in to put in these sinful behaviors to death. In Colossians 3 and 5, the writer wrote, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil conspicuance, and covetousness, which is idolatry. The writer was admonishing us to turn away from things that we have done and rebuke sin in our life. And in doing so, we daily become we become more like Jesus. We, we put on the nature of Him and are renewed as we learn to know Him and become like Him. And the gospel will empower us to help others and to overcome the guilt and power of sin in their lives. And sometimes it takes, um, it takes, encourage, it takes courage and it takes faith when we share the gospel. Sister Chelsea made mention of this morning, you know, about making the, the situation awkward. And it can be, but through prayer and through dedication and through passion, we can share the gospel with people without being pushy. There's nothing wrong with being passionate about what you believe in. Uh, yesterday I was helping a friend of mine with some remodel projects and they had a meeting with uh, a man that sells knives. And they were some kind of real fancy knives. I can't recall the name of them. But uh, the full kitchen set would run you around five grand. Well, I was working on the project and he was giving his demo there and he was by no means pushy, but he was a real salesman. And uh, he, he, he had them drawn in and convinced. And I'm steady working on my project, not paying much attention, just overhearing, and he brought out a few things that I caught my ear and that I liked. And so at the end, he said, what would you be interested in? And this person named off just a few small things that they were in, and I said, I want to look at that right there. And he pulled them out, and I said, well, I'll take one of them. And what about that? And directly, I said, well, that'll be enough, and how much to owe you? And he said, sir, that'll be $533.91. I said, I got four little old knives. And he said, well, these knives will last a lifetime, and it's free sharpening always. I said, well, you mean I got to come find you every time I want them sharpened? And he said, no, I'll come to you. And I told him then, I says, that's passion about what you do. To, to be dedicated enough to come to somebody's home and be willing to, to return a visit and to sharpen a knife just because they bought, bought a knife from you. And I believe with all my heart, if we'll develop that same passion, that we can go into people's homes or, or find ourselves in their lives and we can share this gospel. And it can be done without being pushy. Jesus brought good news to the poor and he proclaimed the release of the captives and he gave sight to the blind and he brought oppression to an end and he announced that the time of the Lord had come. And these miracles are available physically and spiritually because Jesus liberated people that were held in physical and spiritual bondage and blindness. And we, you and I continue the mission of Jesus by allowing him to work through us for others. 
We know that sin fractured the entire creation and not just humanity, but it, it, it fractured the earth. And the gospel just does not affect humanity. The gospel affects all of creation. Paul talked about this in Romans. He discusses how that the creation was subjected to sin and its negative effects, such as death and dysfunction and disconnection through the fall. Yet creation, like you and I, waits in hope for that day of redemption when Jesus returned. Paul used pregnancy as a metaphor explaining that all creation groans in childbirth for the day of its deliverance in Romans 8 and 22. And even though we are experiencing salvation, we still will be saved from much more. Our physical bodies, earth, and all of creation will be redeemed and restored for the glory of God. All the lingering sin, as well as the damages caused by sin, one day will be moved from this creation. We know from the book of Revelations there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And so when you and I share the gospel, we are not only teaching people about Jesus Christ, but we're proclaiming his glorious good news to all of the earth. And each account of the Great Commission featured Jesus Christ's commission to preach the gospel to all nations. And Jesus made it clear how you and I could do this. When he went away in Acts 1 and 8, he says, I'm going to give you some power. And after receiving the power, the, the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit, that believers or Christians would spread the gospel. And in those days, the gospel would be spread to the regions of Judea and Samaria. And later, they would preach the gospel to Gentile nations, eventually ending in the empire's capital of Rome. And so when Peter and John went to Samaria after the apostles had heard the Samaritans and received the gospel message, Peter and John needed to see them experience what they had. And the apostles had likely only shared the gospel with fellow Jews at this time. And, and since heaven is made up of people from every tribe, nation, and language, we can't discriminate. I said, since heaven is made up from every tribe, nation, and language, we cannot discriminate. It took an angel, a vision, and an escort to get Peter to go to the house of Cornelius. I hope it never takes me that much for me to share this gospel with someone, especially for people from a different nation or culture or religion than, than mine own. Our time is short. We don't have time to cull. We, we have to preach to whomever God puts in our path. It, it's not up to you and I to pick and choose who, who we think needs to hear this gospel. It's not up to us to choose who we think would be a good fit for our church just because they hold a prominent position or perhaps they are uh, blessed with financially. But we, we have to share the gospel with whomever God will place in our path. Um, Pentecost has, and I say this respectfully, but Pentecost Apostolics has developed a black eye over the years of, I'll try to say this carefully, of, of, of picking, picking who we think would fit. And if, and if you don't believe that, you talk to some people, try to witness to people in the world. And they tell you about how uncomfortable they were made feel when they went to a Pentecostal church or how they were secluded and maybe 
asked to sit in the back. And we, we think that that don't go on, but I'm telling you it does. I had the privilege just to, sometime back to, I was out of town working and I visited a church, a very diverse church. There was white, black, oriental, and Spanish. And I was amazed at how when the service progressed, how kind and open that the church was to individuals there. They, uh, they participated in worship service and prayer service, and it was obvious that they were not visitors. They had been there. You could tell the way they carried on. They had been there several times, but they were active in the worship service, the prayer line, the altar call, and the church made them feel welcome and included. There was no isolation whatsoever. Were they dressed like everyone else? No. They didn't look like a seasoned saint, but they knew that there was freedom to worship and to be involved. And, and that is the atmosphere that we must create every time the doors are open. I understand where we're at. We're in Hatch Bend, Florida, and, and the diversity is not much here. But ladies and gentlemen, we have to create an atmosphere that when people come in off the streets, you have no idea where they've come from, what they've been through, and shame on us if we try to pick and place and put them in a category and not just encourage them to enjoy the freedom of the Holy Ghost and, and just worship right along with us. They are a soul hungry for God, and that hunger is what brought them here. And God help us if we judge them for seeking more in God just because they don't resemble us. We have ad adapted the personality or, the, or been tagged with the, with the saying that if they don't dress like us, if they don't look like us, then they can't be a part of us. And I, I, I rebuke that. Yeah. I, I, I rebuke that. The, the place, the church that I just mentioned, there were people there not dressed like everybody else was. Their hair wasn't just like everybody else. Their clothing wasn't just like everybody else. And if, if you think that I'm talking about watering down the gospel, or if you think that I'm speaking of, of backing off of standards, you've totally missed what I'm trying to convey here. That's not what I'm speaking of. This is not our grandfather and grandmother's church anymore. In 1970, 1980, most everyone in this country had a concept or an idea of what church was and what church is about. But in 2023, we're dealing with people that have no idea. They couldn't tell you if Noah was on a boat or where Moses was at. But they know they feel something in their heart. They know that something's missing. And so they come to where they're drawn to. We talk about creating an atmosphere and a spirit that when people ride by and see the sign, they'll feel something. And they do. So woe unto us if they come into this house. And please don't mistake this as pastoring. I'm not pastoring. But when they come into this house, if we can't offer a hand of love and let them know that they are welcome here to worship with us. They don't have to look like us. For some reason, we have this concept that if a person comes to the altar and prays one time, then when they come back to church, they need to be dressing like us and looking like us. But nothing could be further from the truth because, again, we're dealing with people that have no concept of church. 
Nobody's ever taught them how to dress. Nobody's ever taught them how to act in church or to conduct themselves. But if we'll let the Holy Ghost do its job, it needs no help. You don't have to prop the Holy Ghost up. The Holy Ghost will teach and guide and instruct exactly what to do. Now that does not give us the, the exit or the, the, not a responsibility to teach and preach from behind this desk standards and, and truth, but our pastor will do that. He does a good job at teaching how we need to live our lives, but it is not up to us as saints to try to fix people the way we want them. Jesus commissioned us to baptize in his name. And without insight into this historical background, it can be difficult to see why John the Baptist caused such a ruckus. His message of repentance was an affront to the religious leaders. Baptism predated the New Testament and involved a ritual washing that the Gentiles received alongside of circumcision if they wanted to fully convert into Judaism. The ritual was performed to wash away the filth of the Gentile world so the new Jewish converts would be clean. But, but John preached the baptism of repentance to all the Jews in Israel. And this teaching emphasized that their birth as Jews was not enough. He was telling them, just because you're a Jew, that doesn't qualify you. You've got to be baptized. So all people, included Jews, needed to repent of their sins and be baptized. And so what John was doing was a public sign of confession and dedication to amend their sinful behavior. And nothing has changed today. We know that you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. It's, some would refer to it as works, but it is not works. It is con a confession and a dedication to, to know, to let others know and yourself know that you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that being baptized in his name will wash away your sins. The Pharisees and Sadducees attended one of John's baptismal services, but only to watch. And so John, he confronted them in Matthew 7. He said unto them, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I wonder how far we'd get today if we said that to somebody who was watching a baptism surface. Call them a viper. Wouldn't many people step up to be baptized. But John had his own way of doing things. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees banked on their genealogy for their righteousness. But the kingdom of God is not something that we are born into naturally. God has no grandchildren. I'll say that again. God has no grandchildren. We all must be born again into the kingdom of God. I can't slide in here off my mama's coattail. It's up to me. I'm the one that has to have the relationship with Jesus Christ. And Christians join a new community also when we're baptized. And in baptism, we are initiated into God's new covenant. And since all the apostles were Jews, they were familiar with Jewish baptism and John's baptism, and what each of them represented. So when Jesus instructed the apostles to baptize in his name, they understood baptism in that context. And when Cornelius and his household received the Holy Ghost, Peter equated their experience to his own. And because of this, he baptized Cornelius and his household in the name of Jesus. And they were recognized as full members of the bodies of Christ, even though they were Gentiles. And so through baptism in Jesus' name, you and I obtain access to a new covenant in Jesus Christ. 
Just before Jesus ascended, the disciples asked him, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And the apostles did not understand. And so likewise, we all could be led astray by social or political matters. The goal of the commission of Jesus is to not advance the kingdom of this world, but to advance Christ's kingdom. And I'm not insinuating that we stick our head in the sand and, and disregard what's going on around us. You, you, you can't do that. We're inundated with it day in and day out. But I do believe that we can't let ourselves get caught up with everything that's going on in the world and forget what we're called here to do. I know it's been said a hundred times and it'll probably be said a hundred more, but God knew that we would be born in this day and time. And he thought enough of us to place us here at this time. So that tells me he's got enough confidence in you and I to handle whatever comes and whatever may go. And if he's got enough confidence in us, that tells me that his spirit will lead me and his spirit will guide me. And if he wanted me to be here in the last days, I want to take full advantage of it because I truly believe that we're going to see the greatest revival that the world has ever known. And I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. And the goal of his commission is, is to advance his kingdom. And this happens when we extend service and hope to all of the Christian community. Every Holy Ghost-filled child of God is a minister to share the kingdom of God. And I've already said, but the, the ministry will, for some, it'll become professional. It'll be a vocation. Missions, for example, was not just something Paul did. That was Paul's identity. He was a missionary. And some may not embrace ministry as a professional vocation. However, it remains a large part of their lives. And we need everyone, everyone that's a part of the church to be a minister of some sort. Like Aquila and Priscilla, they helped establish and maintain the churches at Corinth. They was not ministers. And they helped lead Apollos to the Christian faith. And many theologians suggest that Apollos is the author of the epistle to Hebrews. And without Aquila and Priscilla's ministry, Apollos may have not even been saved. They were just workers in the church. The, the scripture tells us that they maintained the church. Now, in my mind, maintained is maintenance. So they might have mowed the yard, Brother Allen. They, they may have cleaned the sanctuary, Mama. They may have washed windows or, or, or swept out the floors. But in doing all of that for the kingdom of God, they found it in their hearts to witness to Apollos. And because of that, we possibly could have the book of Hebrews today. And while Jesus has a specific calling for each of us, our general calling is to share this gospel. And God has commissioned and equipped us to go out into the world just like he sent the apostles. And when we follow God's calling, he'll lead us in our individual calling, uniquely specialized for our skills, personalities, and our life experience. And I'm bringing this to a close, or going to try to, but the, the original audience of the epistle of Hebrews is unknown. And some suggest that, that it was written to Jewish Christians living in Rome, while others suggest it was written into the church in Jerusalem. So whether it was Apollos or whether it was Paul, however, we know that based on the references when the letter that the audience that they were writing to were Jewish Christians because in Hebrews 1 and 1, they talk about how they were immature in their faith. In Hebrews 5 and 12, they talk about experience and persecution. In 10 and 32, they talk about wavering their commitment to their faith. And the writer wrote to help them grow in faith 
to despite the persecution that they were receiving. And the writer of Hebrews has invited his audience to consider the individuals who previously suffered. We know that as Hebrews 11, the chapter of the heroes of faith. But I believe a more fitting description might be highlighting these people who suffered immensely for the faith. Hebrews 12 and 1 encourages believers to lay aside the setbacks and the sins that snare us. And these witnesses are those who have lived the life of faith before us. Their faithfulness bears witness to our faithfulness to God. And I'm, I'm thankful for Hebrews 11, but I'm also thankful for the saints of God that have sit right here on these same pews that you have, that have went on to their reward. But I've been, had the privilege to watch day in, day out, for them to be faithful to the house of God and faithful to the kingdom of God. The New Living Translation calls Jesus the champion of our faith, meaning he successfully ran and completed this race without any errors. Jesus endured all the hostility, shame, and pain of the cross by focusing on the tremendous power of the gospel. And so when you and I make mistakes, we're encouraged to focus on the testimony of the believers that have went on before us. And, and Hebrews advocates that we must be other-focused rather than self-focused. And that's a difficult thing to do sometimes, to focus on others. It's not about our ability, but it's about being empowered by the community of faith. In other words, how we gain and maintain strength is not only being a member of the church, but being plugged in to the church and active in the church, participating in the things that the church is involved in. And when Jesus comes and we meet the saints who have gone on before us, instead of asking them their stories, they may want to ask us about our story. And we have to consider the excitement shining on their faces as we testify the great work that God done through, that God did through us in his spirit in these last days when he said he will pour out his spirit upon all flesh. I have a pigeon, and you, you can stand with me if you will. I have a pigeon that showed up at my house some weeks ago and uh, has a band on its leg, so I'm assuming... Someone had released it and it didn't return, and I probably done the wrong thing by feeding it. And so now I'm assuming it's a she because she's sitting on a nest of eggs and she won't leave. So, But there have been several times I almost could convince her to land on my arm. And so I'm, I'm sure that she was a pet to someone, but it's caused me to be interested in pigeons here lately. And so I, I wanted to share this with you. On October 4, 1918, American troops led by Major Charles Whitsley pushed too deep into the Argonne Forest and they were, cons they were cornered by the German forces. They became known as the Lost Battalion. Handicapped by scarce supplies and no possibility of backup, a crew of about 550 men fought tooth and nail to hold off the Germans for several days. To somehow make matters worse, American artillery dropped an airstrike on their position unaware that it was American troops. Their position left the lost battalion far out of the range of radio and leaving carrier pigeon messengers as their only chance to make it out alive. Flying through the air wasn't exactly safer than the ground because German soldiers in charge of machine guns were specifically trained to locate the birds mid-flight and shoot them out of the sky. And this made trusting a carrier pigeon with a message extremely dangerous because the strategic message could easily be recovered by the enemy 
if the bird were to be shot down. And being the machine gun shot 500 rounds per minute, there were many messenger birds that met their fate. In the 12th hour, Major Whitsley sent out one last pigeon. Claire Amy was the pigeon, and the message read, We are along the road parallel to 276.4. Our own artillery is dropping a barrage directly on us. For heaven's sake, stop it. Claire Amy soared into the savage skies, determined to deliver the message, but the hearts of the battalion sunk when they saw a bullet hit Claire Amy, knocking him out of the air. And in an act that defies, that defies all logic, Claire Amy rose back to the skies and continued his valiant quest. Physically wounded, but mentally unstoppable, Claire Amy dodged spree after spree of machine gun fire as he escaped. When he finally arrived at his destination, he was blind in one eye, and had catastrophic injuries to his right leg. Thankfully, Army medics were able to save his life, taking notice of the content of this message. Americans were able to reposition their intended airstrikes and eliminate any further chance of friendly fire, and the following day, American artillery rained down on the German forces, shifting the tides in the favor of the lost battalion. And because of Cher Amy's valiance, 196 men made it out alive. Once he was healed up, blind in one eye and missing one leg, Claire Amy returned to home to the United States with his trainer, Captain John Carney, and he passed away in 1919, but the body of this pigeon was preserved and given to the Smithsonian Museum of American History, where others can learn of his heroic. It is the devil's pleasure to lie to you and I and to convince us that we are damaged goods, we're wounded, how could we ever be of any use to the church and to the kingdom of God? How could we be a witness and help someone out of their situation and lead them to Jesus Christ? And I just want to remind you this morning that you don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a world-renowned evangelist, and you don't even need to be an ordained minister. And it doesn't matter if you've been wounded. It doesn't matter if you've had a host of mistakes in your life. All that is required is to be a willing child of God. And if we're that, we have what it takes, and then we have the unstoppable. Uh, if we have the unstoppable determination of Sher Amy, then we too can play an active role in the army of God, and be a part of what we're talking about today. And that is be a part of the church in action. Would you lift your hands with me this morning as we close out this in service and just ask the Lord to give us the strength and the ability to do what He's called us to do? Father, I love you, and I am so thankful for the opportunity and the privilege to be a part of the kingdom of God, to be a part of the church. And I'm asking today that you would give me the strength. I fail daily, God, on spreading this message. I should do more, but I need the strength of the Holy Ghost to give me the power, God, to give me the encouragement. And as we move forward, I ask you to do that for us as individuals and as a congregation. Help us to spread this gospel, Lord, to those who need it most in this world. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you today by the media ministry of Hatchbend Apostolic Church. We pray that it's ministered to you in some way, and we'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to join us in service here at Hatchbend Apostolic. Our Sunday services begin at 10 a.m. and our Wednesday night service at 7.30 p.m. For any more information or to speak with our ministry staff, 
please feel free to call our church office at 386-935-2806, or you can visit the contact link here on our website. Again, thank you for listening, and we pray God's richest blessings on you and your family.